0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: Memory is very short. In fact, if you look at a significant makeup of many portfolio managers today, many strategists and analysts today, really they are experiencing rising interest rates for the first time in their careers.
0: That's the voice of someone who was at ground zero of Wall Street's meltdown 10, count them 10 years ago. A guy who knows a thing or 20 about volatility, this new thing in the markets that everyone's talking about. So, chug some mailocks and pay good attention. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of our friends at Elwood Thompson's, Virginia's best market, hands down, at the top of Carytown. I dig them for the hot breakfast buffet, for the variety of juices and coffees that they serve, for their mm, Indian Wednesdays, gosh, you name it. Mexican Fridays, the Beat Cafe, at the top of Carytown, at the corner of Elwood and Thompson streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us in studio, Ardavan Mobasheri, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Asima Private Wealth. He's also an adjunct professor of economics and finance at the U of R's Robbins School of Business. Sir, how are you? Good morning. I want you to take me back, that's roughly 10 years ago, uh, to March 16, 2008, where Bear Stearns signed a merger agreement with J.P. Morgan Chase in a stock swap worth $2 a share or less than 7% of Bear Stearns market value just two days earlier.
1: Where were you then, sir? So I had actually uh, uh, left Bear Stearns in September of 07 but still had strong connections, uh, as, as anyone uh, would. And um, I was on the... In preparation of joining uh, my role at AIG at the time, but I can...
0: <laughs> What a great story to tell your grandkids! I was between Bear Stearns and
1: AIG in 2007 in, and 2008. <laughs> in, in, in fact, when I was when I was having discussions with AIG, uh, my wife asked me a question. Uh, a very interesting question. One night, saying, "Why uh, AIG uh, from Bear Stearns? Why AIG?" And I said, "You know what, honey? After what we went through, the safety and security of a very large insurance company is what we need for the time being."
0: Again, great story for your grandkids.
1: Yes. Goodness, let the me say, I know <laughs> your title between 2003 and 2007
0: at Bear Stearns Asset Management was Managing Director and Senior Economist. I, I think Bear was founded in 1923. It's a it's an ancient firm, and it was that 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 kind of scrappy, hungry uh, cornerstone on on Wall Street that just kind of vanished. Uh, at the beginning of 2008. And then after that, you were senior managing director and chief economist and head of AIG Global Economics uh, between June 2008 and August 2012. And we knew AIG was rescued by the government that fall. I just want to get in your head, even though you had left the firm, when you saw that $2, either on the PR release or the Wall Street Journal headline, this is before we had iPhones, Most of us. I just remember I was in L.A. visiting my cousin and I went on Yahoo Finance to check the markets and I had to do a triple take. $2 a share? You sure this isn't $20 a share? That was the first true tell that we had a crisis coming down the pike.
1: Well, basically, when you look at it at $2 a share, what J.P. Morgan effectively said was, Bear Stearns, we will buy you, but what you're worth is your building. Your headquarters on 383 Madison and nothing else. Now you
0: were truly at ground zero of what was going on because these pair of hedge funds that earlier I was at Business Week and my colleague Matt Goldstein was covering them in the summer of 2007 that made some leverage bets that went awry before the crap really hit the fan. I mean there, there were there were some you know reverberations. I remember July 4th 2007. I went to Niagara Falls with my mom and my brother and it was kind of in the news. Nobody truly understood it, but it was really a tip of the iceberg moment.
1: It was uh, 2004, 2005, 2006. We had an interesting situation from an economic perspective where there was literally free money. Uh, Banking system was awash with cash coming in overseas domestically and and on the fixed income demand side, uh, the demand was enormous. And so uh, innovation, risk-taking, leverage was the name of the game at the time. So what were what were those products that were being sold at Bear Stearns Asset
0: Management? I mean, these were yield products that were sold with leverage to kind of juice the returns.
1: These were these are were, uh, relatively uh, um, good yielding fixed income instruments that were backed by home mortgages. Uh, many of them subprime home mortgages uh, that were leveraged many multiples of times to provide you that extra added juice on yield over, let's say, a short-term instrument such as LIBOR.
0: So was it just modeled to think that we would never see this kind of uh, backup in in, uh, mortgage defaults in a way that would be amplified in a leveraged portfolio? Were they just counting on, what, 100 years of information? How much back-tested information is there?
1: Well, so that's a great question. Um, And that's where the risk effectively was disconnected with the – The models were disconnected with reality. So one of the assumptions that were popularly made at the time, and and it wasn't just Bear Cerns, and it was many of the brokerage firms, including many of the rating agencies, uh, we did not have a history in the U.S. dating back to the 1940s of home prices ever declining on a real term. And so the idea that uh, you would price in from a risk perspective, a decline of, let's say, 10, 15, 20, and in some instances, 30%, as we saw, was unheard of. And so, yes, we weren't pricing it. Now, uh, did we have information going back 100 years? We didn't. Some farm prices dating back to the Depression that showed some price declines, but those weren't really reliable. So, yes, from the universe of data that was available at the time, home prices never declined. And so then, hence, the collateral, which was Mm. the price of the home backing it, would never go or should never go below the mortgage that you took out. And hence, if somebody ever defaulted, you'd easily take home the mortgage.
0: So you left in the autumn of 2007, Bear Stearns?
1: September 07, yeah. Did you still have stock when the $2 take under was announced? I
0: did. I really want to get back to your head at that moment because <laughs> I think back to it, I'd never imagined that it would get ad- as bad as it did. And obviously, the, the true pyrotechnics happened in September and October of that year with the failure of Lehman and the bailout of AIG and Merrill Lynch's shotgun wedding and all these things in rapid succession and TARP and... We know how that year ended and the presidential election. But I think back to the initial kind of murmurations, I think, in the the spring and summer of 2007 about maybe some potential huge housing crisis thing coming back the line. What nobody imagined was that it would truly recourse back into Wall Street, that it would cross-contaminate one another, Main Street and Wall
1: Street. No. In in fact, I've I've still kept my uh, Barron's Outlook 2008 copy. Um, and I still see many of the well-known strategists still still around projecting higher prices and relatively benign economic growth for 2008. So yeah, it was it was um, it was severely underestimated. The exposure and the ability for smaller events to reverberate across a, the broader economy was severely underestimated.
0: So here's the thing: the Bernanke Fed, and and subsequently, I mean, he, he steps down and he retires, and Janet Yellen takes over, and now it's a new Fed chair. They treated that problem, which you talked about, an abundance of of capital in the system and easy cash with more easy cash and more zero interest rate policy. We've had nearly 10 years of zero interest rate policy. So what was your reaction in that markets did snap back? I mean they bottomed in March of 2009. Wall Street was recapitalized. The dividends came back and risk-taking came back with a vengeance. Could you have imagined having – been part of that. I mean, people people were approaching me at my magazine and saying we were headed headlong into a depression. We'd be eating cat food. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I would say that Ben Bernanke's uh, background and experience, both from an academic perspective and, and how strong he understood uh, or well understood at the time the impacts that the Great Depression had. And then more recently, um, what Japan had gone through gave him an ability to, to try and outdo what the Japanese did and, and undo what happened during the Great Depression far quicker. So it was a gamble. He didn't want us to go through the Japanese-style uh, deflationary era. It was a gamble he took, and it worked to his credit. But as you said, we flooded the market with even more capital, more money, um, and hence we are where we are.
0: Yahoo Finance is running with a headline uh, today at the end of this volatile week saying, market experts are starting to see parallels to the financial crisis. The market is looking a lot like it did in 2007. Uh, Much like in 2007, I quote, the United States is currently experiencing an economic expansion. The dollar is weakening to its lowest level in years. Politicians are calling for 3% economic growth. U.S. economic data is generally positive, but the stock market is in free fall. Close quote. Uh, This time, I continue, this time around, rather than mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations tied to the housing market, the culprit appears to be volatility trading instruments in stocks. That's a lot to unpack, but we do know – and you've written quite a bit about this in your dispatches and columns and I have read you one on CNBC.com and you're syndicated across the country and you send out a newsletter. We are in such a prolonged period of muted volatility. It's kind of hard to remember what the stomach-churning um, – plunges of 2008, 2009, 2011 were like, because it's kind of been slapped out of the system. I think last year was maybe the the second least volatile year on record. We didn't have a 5% pullback. We had very few days where the market would even fall 1%. It was all up, 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 up. And now on a week like this, suddenly we're in 10% correction territory. We've had two days, including Thursday, where the Dow fell more than 1,000 points. It's all a very new feeling in terms of institutional memory.
1: Well, memory is short on Wall Street, very uh, exactly. And so uh, the volatility or lack of volatility that we observed in the equity markets, let's say over the last uh, 13, 14 months. Um, was unique in a sense uh, over the last 15 years. But again, uh, you could go back to 2008. We observed the same lack of volatility in many of the mortgage products that were being produced at the time. We went through an extraordinary period during the uh, 98, 99, 2000 with technology stocks where you were simply rising every single day. So you're right. Memory is very short. Um, In fact, if you look at a significant makeup of many portfolio managers today, many strategists and analysts today, really, they are experiencing rising interest rates for the first time in their careers.
0: Doesn't that blow your mind?
1: It's amazing. Is is Wall Street just full of 20-somethings? Wall Street technology have something in common, and that is they they like youth.
0: Let me take you back to 2006 and 2007. And the Fed's main interest rate was at five and a quarter percent at its 2006 high. Only in September of 2007 did Mr. Bernanke realize something was really wrong and start taking an axe to interest rates. And even then, 2007 interest rates end at 4.25 percent. Now, we are currently, sir, at 1.25 to 1.50 percent. We are, if you believe, the economic data at full employment. The stock market was recently at an all-time high. I mean, it only just recently had this 10% correction. Has added trillions in market capitalization. The wealth effect is there. Inflation is largely subdued why do we have interest rates kind of at a fraction of where they
1: were the last time the economy was this hale and hardy? I would add one thing to that comment on five and a quarter percent in two thousand and seven. the Fed at least was on hold. What's interesting and odd in the in the midst of the beginning of that crisis, the ECB was actually raising rates uh, in the summer of that year. so 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 it's Europe's Europe central bank. That, that's correct. the european central bank. so it's so it's interesting how uh, to some extent they fall behind a the curve there. You know, interest rates are low for several reasons. Uh, one of them we are not used to being able to model and/or understand and appreciate is globalization. While the labor markets in the U.S. may be tight, while the labor markets in, in certain other countries may be tight as well, but labor utilization by corporations is global. And so, while it may be tight in the U.S., and traditional economic models might tell you in a tight labor market wages should be rising, but if you're if the employees and their duties can easily be transferred and or uh, moved across the ocean or across the world, and not necessarily I mean job losses, but job transfer. Um, you have a large, very large global pool that is available for employment. And so global utilization of resources is not as high as we think, whether it's labor resources or capital resources. And hence, we have a significant amount of global infrastructure that is still not being utilized. And so on a global basis, we don't have inflation. And we shouldn't have inflation. We're still not fully utilizing. So- why, are,
0: why are you taking a narrow definition of inflation? We've had a former Fed president here, Al Broadus, and we asked him, why, why isn't the Fed looking at asset inflation? The fact that there's all sorts of risk-taking. You see with these, with these VIX instruments on Wall Street, people are talking about a potential Minsky moment. Stock markets have been completely healthy. Emerging markets, junk bonds, small caps. I mean, the venture market, you see where Facebook is valued. You see Twitter, Snap, all of these things. Why can't these... Central bankers take a more holistic approach and say, "Whoa, you know," because in your example, after all, Bear Stearns was incented to take these risks to goose yields.
1: That's a, that's an excellent point. So, asset market uh, inflation, let's uh, let's call it multiple expansion uh, into territory that would resemble bubbles, should be something that monetary policymakers should be paying attention to. But let's not forget these are uh, heavily regulated institutions. Uh, with very strict mandates now you can move around a little bit about around that mandate, but for the most part, they are focused on several mandates there. But but that that is an excellent excellent point. The, given how global financial markets have evolved, how they've integrated more with the actual physical real economy, yes, these are some things that the policymakers should be paying. The asset price inflation definitely should be part of the the picture.
0: And it's a question, unfortunately, that vexed Alan Greenspan on the way out. After all, he gave his irrational exuberant speech in December of ninety six. And the market only started cratering in the spring of 2000. And, and having said
1: that, um, while we may not view policymaking, at least officially, from the part of the central banks as looking at asset market inflation, but I do have to tell you that between 2014 and 2016, Janet Yellen certainly was taking a look at financial markets. Uh, the slowdown that China observed in 2015 into 2016 and the volatility that we saw in the equity markets in 2015, 2000, uh, early 2016, certainly slowed down her pace of, of rate hikes. So while it is not something they uh, t- officially target, but they're certainly sensitive to it. Uh, and, in fact, if you look at the uh, some of the futures markets in terms of Fed funds rates down the road, uh, over the last week, the volatility certainly has had an impact on whether we're, we are going to get three or four rate hikes. Full
0: disclosure, on Robin Farzad. We're talking to Ardavan moba a veteran of Bear Stearns and AIG, uh, kind of in the teeth of the financial crisis. He's now managing director and chief investment officer at Asima Private Wealth. Um, I do want to talk about interest rates because – you know the market seems to be freaking out if we if we try to go back and look at a specific moment i mean some say it could be apple had a bad number and apple being the biggest component in the market um it was this jobs report that showed that there might finally be signs of wage inflation you and i have spoken about this doesn't it cut both ways if you're the federal reserve and you've been at max stimulus for a decade you were looking for a little bit of inflation because after all inflation is looked at a different way Sustainable inflation with a growing economy gives you arrows in your quiver, gives you uh, more leeway to take rates down when the system crashes. I mean I like to say that the Fed macro-manages the economy. I mean this is not a you know, neoclassical Wild West economy. They need – they should be rooting. The whole country should be rooting for some amount of inflation in the system to give us the ammo that we need for the inevitable downturn when we have
1: to cut rates. And that that is the classic view of inflation and bringing inflation to a reasonable point. In other words, from a textbook perspective, we want inflation to be at a level where it doesn't impact corporate decision-making as far as investments are concerned. In other words, we don't want inflation to be so high that companies decide – to manage inventory and manage production simply because they know prices are going to go high. Now, is there a magic number to where you cross the point where you have unhealthy inflation? We've been debating that for for decades now. It's generally understood, at least in the developed world, uh, that it should be no more than 2 2.5%. Two
0: now, we did see CVS, the biggest drugstore chain, one of the biggest retailers in the country, announcing at the end of the week that it's going to boost the minimum wage workers to get $11 an hour. And others have followed suit. Recently, you saw some Special bonuses made by uh, you know, Philip Morris, USA, um, Walmart, others, they may have cited the tax reform issue. There does seem to be a recognition that finally maybe workers have to share in what has largely been an asset boom. I mean, if you've been a holder of capital, if you've been a property holder, a, 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 a kind of a landlord, a stock, a portfolio person, a junk bond holder, you've been in clover with uh, but the consistent nag has been that there's been so much slack in the labor
1: markets that people haven't really gotten raises in the longest time. Yeah, the minimum wage is an interesting story. I think, uh, you know, we, we have uh, federal minimum wage laws that I actually think will probably see a re- uh, rise this year. And then we have state-level uh, minimums. The, unfortunately, what we tend to do is we raise these uh, numbers to a certain level and then we keep them flat until the next time we raise them. If we just simply inflation index them, and allowed these the minimum wage to rise with the rate of inflation, then we would probably be where some of these $11, 12%, 12 percent, twelve dollar an hour wage increases are. So there's a lag effect, if you will, from from what they've done. The bonuses and the the raises, if you actually look at look deeper into the numbers and the number of individuals that are actually getting the bonuses and the amounts that they're getting, they're relatively small relative to where overall personal income. So I'm not quite sure if the announcements that we're seeing today are more reflective of the tax cuts or it is more publicity-seeking, if you will. Do you worry
0: about this new Fed chair, Powell, coming in? I mean, it's it's a baptism by fire if you think that there is an occasion for you to come in and, you know, how would the markets react? I want to know if he did something like Alan Greenspan did in 94 and said, you know what, just to be preemptive,
1: I'm going to come in and do an unannounced hike of 50 basis points. Do you ever wonder? So he's not an economist, but you don't have to be an economist to be the chairman of the Fed. We've had economists for the last, I believe, 30 years. So he's a little bit of a, of a change, if you will. Uh, on the other hand, he's an individual that has been involved in the financial markets Uh, for most of his career, and so he does come with a background outside of academia that probably or should and could come in handy, if you will, at the Fed. Now, is he going to completely alter the infrastructure of how the Fed thinks and how the FOMC acts? I don't think so. He's a quite pragmatic guy. I don't see too much change between Powell and the Yellen Feds, though we could see periodic interesting commentary and or perspectives from the chairman that one historically would not have seen. But at the end of the day, I think he's going to manage the FOMC by consensus. So when you step back from all this, what is your big
0: read on what's going on? I see that a lot of people think it's it's glib for business writers to say, oh, this is the pause that refreshes. I mean, no one likes volatility. But on the flip side of it, we had a very abnormal stretch of calm. I always cite the Luthold risk um, aversion index has been at an all-time low. People really, truly forget what it was like when everything was in free fall. And a, a market without corrections is kind of like, somebody
1: told me once, it's like Christianity without hell. You really can't have it. <laughs> and and you know what? Uh, I think a lot of blame has been given over the last week in terms of commentaries uh, regarding what caused the market volatility the last week and Probably the one that's cited most often is the non-farm payroll number that came out on Friday. It was a fairly good number, um, although from an inflationary perspective, it did show some spike in wages as the cause, if you will, for the spike in rates that that eventually uh, flowed into the markets. But I would actually go back to an announcement that the Fed made, uh, I'm sorry, the U.S. Department of Treasury made that Wednesday, which was for the first time they officially came out and announced the borrowing schedule for Treasuries in 2018. It was an announcement that was somewhat of a surprise, not surprise in the sense that they announced an increase in the borrowing. We knew that was going to happen as a result of the tax cuts. But the fact that the amounts that they were borrowing, in, in effect, were implying economic growth rates that were weaker than what the administration had previously projected, if you back into the numbers. So, in a sense, it kind of gave a wake-up call, if you will, from my perspective, to the treasury market that there's going to be a lot more borrowing – coming, not just 2018, but 2019, 2020. And mind you, this was before the $300 billion budget deal was announced. And so there was a realization, final realization, I think, from my perspective, that there's two sides of the equal sign. You know, I tell my students in algebra uh, that in algebra, both sides of the equation have to be equal. Now, between December and, let's say, mid to late January, we were looking at one side of the equation, which was tax cuts are great for corporate earnings. What we weren't paying attention was that given that we already have a deficit, that those tax cuts were going to come at a cost, which was much wider deficits that eventually need to be financed. And if we don't get the foreign investors or domestic savings, it's going to fall on the uh, backs of the banking system. And if the banking system is going to be too busy financing the Treasury – the government, they're not going to be out there financing the private capital markets. According to
0: Bloomberg, volatility is is the explosion in volatility we've seen in just about a week and a half is sparking a rush to hedge at any cost. Um, the cost of protection against more S&P 500 downside reaches a record. And I'm quoting here, the VIX, the main volatility reading, has more than tripled since the peak in global equities just two weeks ago, surging far more than volatility gauges of other asset classes. That was a rude awakening for investors who got used to seeing it hover around record low levels. As shares lost almost $6 trillion of value, investors are battening down the hatches. This is rather whiplashing. Um, you know, we've we've we, we, we seemingly got – I remember leading into this volatility spike in, in 2008, autumn of 2008 with Lehman's collapse and everything. There was ample warning. But things were so hunky-dory and risk
1: was so overrated just a couple of weeks ago. Now, I wouldn't necessarily equate what we just experienced to – the, what no, we experienced with no, Lehman, nothing I, like it. But I would say that if we are going to experience some element of financial market volatility as a result of, let's say, some unwinding of risk that eventually impacts several financial institutions, that would probably be down the road. Mm-hmm. This is far earlier. I would say this is the. There's more, a lot this of is talk the more Bear about Stearns, uh,
0: about about kind of the the risk of exotic hedges. I mean, when you try to build a perfect mousetrap, there's a reason. You know, if I were to you know, just for our, our listeners out there, if I were to go buy one of these ETFs etn products that hedges me against uh volatility it's not a stable asset thing that just i can keep in my portfolio in case of a rainy day it diminishes in value right they use they use derivatives to kind of make a security for an insurance plan for my portfolio and it's just be losing money on that one aspect in order to get this crazy triple that might happen once every few years what to turn that around, is there something out there that is a natural hedge? I mean, some people have argued, you know, we're both Iranian. How many Iranian relatives have pulled you aside and said, gold, Aha! or or oil is number one hedge? You know, there's nothing out there that kind of is a, is a safe way for investors to ensure their
1: portfolio, other than cash, which has been like trash for a long time. Now, keep in mind what's caused some of the volatility recently as it relates to some of these exchange-traded funds aren't the exchange-traded funds that – We're going to hedge you against the downside, meaning that they were, in effect, bets on volatility increasing. What's caused some of the volatility are the inverse of those trading activities. In other words, ETFs that were created to wager on continued low volatility. And hence, as the volatility increased on, let's say, Thursday and Friday. Yeah, many, you many try of explaining those, that to your mother-in-law over of dinner. Of course, the triple inverse <laughs> VIX products that were out there with 300, 400-page prospectuses where uh, in the in, on page 350 would mention that there's significant risk in these ETNs. Will you define for our listeners what a Minsky moment is? It's, it's a moment – that relates the financial markets to the real economy, that one does not expect what one historically always sees happening as a result of excesses in the financial system.
0: So kind of you're so bored, you decide to light something on fire. What'll happen here? Well, nothing happened last time. I'll light more on fire this time. You
1: you act as a leveraged insurance company, insuring products that you do not understand.
0: Tell me, what was your reaction when you thought your flight to safety trade was to go to AIG and you realize AIG was this whole other hornet's nest? <laughs> I could go on with. <laughs> this I do story. want to. I mean, we're talking on. this is it's 10 years after the great crash of 2008 when the stock market fell about 40 percent. Uh, people had experienced a, a rash in volatility or, you know, accounts cleaned out. We saw the whole Madoff mess. I, I saw my magazine fail. Um, I saw people really warning me. I mean, like, you're a young kid. You don't know what the depression was like. Now, my mother lived through the depression and we were kind of slapped out of that in, in short order. Twenty four months. It seems like a. A kind of a vague hallucination now.
1: You know, AIG was a massive global financial institution that was by far the largest insurance company in the world, AAA credit rating that was borrowing at treasury plus, call it five basis points or 10 basis points. I'm not quite sure how what they, what that number was, but it was very tight at, at its peak. And so uh, money was flooded into that institution. Um The institution was known for managing insurance risks, broader, actual real insurance risk, insurance property, insurance property, businesses. So but it so insured both. exotic Wall Street products. Well, when, when the universe of real estate that you can insure, or businesses that you can insure, or lives that you can insure were exhausted, they ended up trying to find other places that they can insure.
0: And I, I just I just remember that a, a lot of people were whispering into the summer of 2008, these guys are idiots. I mean, they're going to get stuck holding the bag. If you're a hedge fund manager who's taking a bet on mortgage portfolios <laughs> crashing, and these guys are the insurance on the other end of the trade, that they're going to get stuck with a huge tab soon. But ultimately, it was the taxpayer who was stuck with the tab.
1: Correct. And But I have to tell you that given the way the Treasury and the Fed managed the operation, ultimately, the whether it was Bear Stearns uh, I'm sorry whether it was AIG or some of the other institutions that they bailed out ultimately the taxpayer was better off. They, they... Why
0: am I sitting in a radio studio kind of collecting pennies for a podcast when I could be out there taking these outsized risks and too big to fail is even more of a problem than it was 10 years ago. I mean after all Bear Stearns is now part of JP Morgan Bear Stearns Wamu, Providian. I don't know what else it's bought since. I mean these companies are enormous and I don't think much has changed. I mean the same kind of crash can't happen again you can't have the perfect storm of collateralized debt obligations and risk taking in those two bear stir hedge funds but certainly uh wall street is not necessarily manageable if one of these companies like credit suisse was being whispered about last week does it have huge exposure uh to these exotic you know hedge products that what if they're on the hook what if the new york fed and the ecb
1: have to get together there it seems like we didn't truly learn that lesson memory is very short Memory is very short, uh, and the credit markets and financial institutions, in not just in the U.S., but in many other developed economies, have a special status in the economy. Credit must flow in the system for the economy to evolve, and so they, they have a protected status. Now, I have to tell you that we quite often don't recognize the responsibility that financial institutions have. In fact, we may begin to realize that in the U.S., at the end of the day, yes, the financial institutions should... Would be saved given their status with the uh, with the government, but at the end of the day, let's not forget, in the United States, especially, uh, they are there to finance the government's deficit. If the government cannot find other investors to invest in it, the banks will come in, and they will buy the treasuries. They will finance the uh, government. So there there is a, there is a give and take here that we don't normally ask everyone else to do. Full
0: disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined in the studio by Artavan Mobasher. He's a veteran of Bear Stearns. Uh, and AIG where he was in the – I mean, gosh, 10 years ago uh, in rapid succession. He's now managing director and chief investment officer at ASEMA Private Wealth. We're talking about all this newfound volatility and whether it signals a beginning of a new era, an end of another era. Um, In the 10 minutes or so we have left, I'd love to ask you about the bond market because certainly when stocks fall, everybody talks about it. Um, You know It's there, the headline thing, 1,000 points, which in the grand scheme of things isn't a lot on a 25,000 – Dow, I mean, if you think about where a thousand points would have been in the crash of 87 or even in 2008, um, it's kind of mundane right now. And on top of that, to look back at the crash of 87, it's like a tiny blip on the long term chart of the markets. But a bond crash does anyone even know what a bond crash feels like? We've seen a huge run up uh, in the 10 year treasury, uh, which, if people are paying attention to their bond portfolio statements, there is a loss. It's an unrealized loss, but you're like, wow. I thought I was getting 3% and suddenly I'm down 6%. There's been a lot of risk-taking in bonds. Uh, at that perceived flight of safety and the, the government bailouts and zero interest rate policy, people buying all sorts of junk, um, uh, real estate-linked products, things that are kind of preferred uh, stock and bond hybrids. Does anyone know what a bond crash feels like? Is there such a thing?
1: Well, there is in risky fixed income markets so we've seen blow-ups in high yield in the past we've seen blow-up in as you said uh, in credit instruments we've seen even blow-ups in government bonds especially in emerging markets but no as far as a significant rise in rates in government bonds or very very low risk bonds at least in the united states no we've not seen it since the 1970s when when interest rates went to double digits now A 10-year treasury that's yielding today, let's say, 2.85 from a low of 1.4 or 1.5, let's say, a year and a half, two years ago, doesn't seem to be significant. In fact, many bulls would argue that that's a healthy rise in interest rates to a more reasonable for the treasuries. But I would argue that you know, a one one and a half percent rise in interest rates today is magnitudes more important than a one and a half percent rise in interest rates, let's say in the early '80s or the late '70s. Back then, we only had a debt to GDP of roughly thirty percent. We today have it at a hundred percent. So, take back me then, back to 1981 or 1982. What was the high in the ten-year bond?
0: I believe the high in the ten-year bond was fifteen and a
1: half. Can Don't you
0: imagine that? that? Can you I just remember my dad would take me to American Savings and Loans. We we got we came here from Iran, we we're four or five years here, and they'd give us anything to give them cash. I mean
1: toasters, blenders, you know. Uh, checking accounts were yielding, I think, five or six percent today. You get nothing on your check.
0: Today, account. as I said before, B of A thinks it's doing me a favor when I give it cash. <laughs> and that's problematic because I think that it creates this this you know, if cash is the ultimate hedge. And even if you think you might be losing money in real terms, a couple of pennies off your dollar every year, it's still the opportunity that you get to buy an asset maybe when it's been discounted by 30 percent. That's your true hedge. You don't have to buy an exotic portfolio. You don't have to worry about options expiration. Uh, But I feel bad for savers, for example. A person who's been trying to save money for 10 years is maybe was expecting
1: 3 or 4 percent saving CD yields is getting nothing. Well, there, there's there's one element of cash or interest rates that it's it's a misnomer and people don't understand it well, but really what counts in terms of in the, in the economy, are real interest rates, not nominal interest Nobody rates. Nobody
0: thinks about real and Nobody nominal. thinks about it, but I'll give you, you an know, example. You and I, as economics wonks, do it. If a woman walks into the, you know, an old lady or, no, or a person walks into a bank, they're like, oh, it's 15% for a six-year CD. But, you know, in real terms, that's actually more like 2%. Yes. But, I, yeah.
1: well, it, and, and but you know, it takes time. I'm not quite sure if we're there here, but, I, you know, in Japan, it took a long time for people to get used to deflation. Um, but... You know, you hear lots of stories of of how the Japanese government borrows money at a half a percent or even less than that. And and there's lines and lines and lines of – in literal terms – of entities willing to lend them the money partly because – All they have to do is wait one year and the purchasing power of the yen actually has gone up due to deflation. So, in effect, there is a yield. We're just not observing it on a nominal basis. And then the other thing I would add in terms of the 70s, yeah, there were amazing times. But let's let's keep in mind that they were an exceptional period, not a normal period. And uh, outside of a full-fledged war, we shouldn't be really experiencing such levels of inflation. What was happening in the 1970s were unique to the 1970s, given how the economy evolved from the 1950s through the late 70s, which is a story unto itself. But there were exceptional times. Corporations weren't able to manage their operations.
0: Do you, buy, do you buy the Labor Department and the Fed's core definition of inflation?
1: You know, it excludes what? It excludes food and energy which are historically been the more volatile elements of inflation. So what they try to do is understand outside of this volatile element of the economy, which is subject to, let's say, OPEC uh, uh, actions, subject to weather as it relates to food. Let's take those noises out that we can't control.
0: Noises, man, I'm getting killed by Hass avocado costs. Yeah and airplane tickets. I mean, it, it seems like it seems like selective information. I've always wanted to hold your hand in the fire and say, do you buy these unemployment numbers? They're saying it's a 4.1% unemployment rate right now. It surely doesn't feel like it did in 99 and 2000, where you have to really throw a lot of money out there to, to get rare talent. People were very competitive in terms of procuring a, a labor force. Now it seems like we have an awful lot of slack, an awful lot of
1: people who have just checked out. Well, I... I so, yes, I do believe the unemployment number is real, 4.1, given the definitions that we have. But you're right. There's a significant amount of l- a labor pool outside, which is today, by the standards of today, are not considered part of the labor force. But that could be the part of the labor force if the structure of the economy is suited to their skill set. Unfortunately, what, the problem we have today – in fact, this is the problem that we have today, not the problem that we had in the 70s – was that there is a skill shortage. There's simply – Are industries in the U.S. today operating, given the globalization that we have, that need skill set, that for one reason or another, the individuals outside of the labor pool or those just entering the labor force do not have? Now, in the 70s, we didn't have that issue. What we had were a large number of women and baby boomers who were entering the labor force. Unfortunately, the companies were managing themselves such that they didn't have enough openings for those individuals.
0: Uh, I, I want to close it out by talking about potentially – if if we look back at this as kind of being a mundane pause that refreshes, not unlike the temper, taper tantrum of 2013, which in hindsight was an amazing buying opportunity. The last time we had a backup in rates like this and there was all sorts of sturm and drang about a market crash and corrections. Is this the long-awaited handoff to emerging markets for leadership that we've been waiting for? Because, look, I remember coming out of um, – you know the early 2000s and and uh, the recession then and 9/11. Emerging markets really took the leadership. Well into the financial crisis, we took the world down. We crashed, but then the S&P 500 and the mighty Dow and U.S. stocks have been kings for the past 10 years. Could this be one of those bizarre, you know, handovers where you see interim volatility but leading to another period of of huge gains?
1: Well, let me let me address the handoff. I think the answer is yes. But I think that handoff has been in the works for the last for the better part of the last 10 years. Um, if you just simply look at global growth in 2017, roughly 31, 32 percent of the reason why the global economy grew last year was because of China. And only 18 percent of it was due to the growth in the U.S., despite the fact that growth in the U.S. rebounded from 2016. And I can give you examples of how India's contribution to global growth exceeded that of Japan, how South Korea's contribution to global GDP exceeded that of the UK, so forth and so forth. So I think that that transition has been in the works and will continue to be. And in fact, that's where one of the opportunities comes about. Now, I don't know if it's necessarily this time and this day, given the market reaction, it may be down the road, but we're used to, at least in the U.S., when looking at reasons why the economy is weak or reasons why the economy is strong, looking at our own neighborhood. We were the largest global economy in the world. And so usually what caused our economy to grow or our our economy to decline was around the corner somewhere in the U.S. We're not used to observing the reason why the U.S. economy is growing to be due to growth elsewhere. We're not used to seeing the U.S. economy slowing down being due to factors outside of the U.S., but that's something I think we're going to have to get used to. In fact, if you look at the numbers for 2017, as good as they were improvement versus 2016, a significant part of U.S. growth was because of our exports and exports to Asia. You want to talk about an export, by the way, in closing, and I know
0: I've taken us way too long, but— one of the nice things we have in our kind of uh, exceptionalism of the United States economy, still the mighty dollar is the standard, you know, reserve currency of the world. We are the envy of the world, even though we've been taken down several notches. And China's great, and and the emerging markets and the BRICS are big. Is every time we have some sort of creep up in rates, it seems like foreign investors pile back into our treasury securities. You
1: know it's it seems like it seems like wow if you get any sort of slack in it people want to buy it up if only we treated the Greeks and the Irish that way during their crisis yes absolutely it's it, and and going back to 2007 the US banking system was collapsing the US government had to bail out the largest banking system in the world and yet what did foreign investors want to do they wanted to lend us money and so, so that's 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 an advantage we have now. That's an advantage that likely will fade over time. It's not a a um, cyclical factor that I think is going to occur over the next five or ten years, but you know the the eventually it will happen. But I don't I don't foresee it happening for at least two three decades.
0: Ardavan Mobasheri, sir you are a gentleman to come on this show thank you for very much for all the PTSD that you've had in your life I mean as, as, a, as a person who was at Bear Stearns at AIG during the heart of the financial crisis I mean I'm glad to see you here I'm glad to see that you're alive 10 years later and you're vibrant and uh, you can still see a, a meaning of life out there thank you Robin for inviting me it was a pleasure to be here and give us your Twitter handle at TheBizCyclist TheBizCyclist yeah. follow this guy Full disclosure, hey, our engineer is Mr. John Valentine. You can find us and love us. Please, I do need your love on NPR One. It's a great app. Get it. And on iTunes, we are at FullDRadio.com. Twitter, FullDRadio. Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Hey, we are non-farm, non-core, index to the CBOE insolvency index. Don't you want to sponsor us? I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.
1: Under pressure. Pressure, Pressure.